Good morning, everybody. Or good evening. That's habit. All right, well. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and kick this off in some prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here this evening, and I thank you for each and every person who's here, Lord. Um, I know that after a day of hard work and different things, coming to a lecture to listen to theology can be a hard thing sometimes, and so I'm just grateful, Lord, that uh, they are here, and really, Lord, it's for you to know you more and to... uh, experience fellowship with you, fellowship with one another in you, and we just ask that uh, this, this evening, Lord, that you would just uh, uh, open our hearts and our minds to understand and comprehend, and really, Lord, not just to uh, comprehend in mind, which is always a danger when just talking about theology, but in our hearts as well, Lord. We want to have this translate into um, obedience, Lord, into worship and gratitude and um, and, 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 and really just to be in awe of you, Lord. So we ask that you would uh, bless this time, Lord, that you would uh, enable us and go before us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, last week, for those of you who weren't here, which is just a few, we talked about uh, divine transcendence. Uh, and in light of that, particularly the incomprehensibility of God. By transcendence, we talked, we, what we meant by that was essentially God's uniqueness, that he isn't like anything in creation. Um, we talked a lot about the prohibition of idols and how through that, God declares to us what he's not. He's not like the different things of the world, um, physical or spiritual, but he's only like himself. He's radically unique. He's I am who I am, and anyway, from that, we talked a lot about how, you know, God is, in his essence, in his own being, incomprehensible to us. That is nature, or knowledge that we just can never have, and even on the other side of things, in God's presence, it's not like it's just going to be all revealed, but even then, God's infinity will never be encompassed by us, only, I mean, Truly, never. So, anyway, I hope after all that it left you rethinking things. Um, And I mean that in a good way, of course. Um, We, when going upon this, at least for myself, I had never considered these ideas. I had never really thought in depth about this. And it was truly revolutionary in my mind to understand God in this sense, right? I always had understood him as a being, the supreme being, but not being itself. And I had always just thought, you know, okay, there it is. We know God. And even at points, I felt like reading the scripture. It was just like, okay, I know this, moving on. But then you realize there's a whole picture of God behind this that is just this inexhaustible well of of beauty and glory and of power that will never cease to leave us you know, with our jaw on the floor, so on and so forth. So I hope it left you rethinking things. And in particular, um, I was hoping it left you feeling, okay, well then, how can we know God? If God is transcendent, if God is 
truly, not just a bigger version of us, but truly different than us, then how can we know him? And of course, those questions did come up last week. We talked a little bit about that, um, about how we can truly understand God. So you see that there's kind of this, if we have a small picture of God, um, it leaves us feeling secure and in control. And that question of God's knowability isn't necessarily a problem for us, right? God can be understood. He can be comprehended. But on the other hand, when we apprehend God as he is, right, when we know him as transcendent and not just a bigger version of ourselves, um, then that question of God's knowability comes rushing to the surface. It confronts us. How can we know this God? And really, how can the finite comprehend the infinite? And how can the uh, how can we who are bound in time comprehend eternity? And how can darkness comprehend light? Thank you, Jeff. And hi, Holly. Hello. <laughs> um, so anyway, you get the question I'm setting up. And before we get to a Christian answer, it's worth noting that just about every religion or philosophical system um, has attempted to explain this seeming impossibility. And it turns out for many of them that they've come to the conclusion that God is indeed beyond understanding and thus unknowable. And anything we say about him, um, or better it, is pure conjecture. We really have no solid basis from which to approach God or which to talk about him. So certain traditions within um, the Muslim religion or the Hindu religion or if you're familiar at all with um, certain strands of ancient Greek philosophy, they've all came to the same conclusion that the supreme deity understood respectively according to those different creeds and religions that he transcends all names and he transcends all attributes that can be given to him and that really the way to know God is not to know him at all. And there's a certain type of piety and devotion that comes from that where it's all about pulling away from the world, and anyway, so on and so forth. And one of the Greek philosophers, he kind of stands as a, uh, uh, a figurehead for all the rest. He says, speaking of God, of him there is no name, no definition, nor knowledge, nor feeling, nor opinion. So what he's saying is that God is so transcendent, he's so radically different than anything in this world, and the things of this world that really... We can't name him. We can give no definition. And further than that, we can't have any knowledge of him, nor feeling, nor opinion, that God is so transcendent, he's almost locked out of creation. And we'll come back to that idea later. And again, as we saw last week, Christian theology sometimes even more radically affirms this same transcendence of God. Justin Martyr, I quoted him in the sermon this past Sunday, He's a figure in the early church. He says, this is a Christian speaking, no one can utter the name of the ineffable God. And if one dare say that there is a name, he raves with a hopeless madness. But these words, Father and God and Lord and Master, are not names but appellations derived from his good designs and functions. So, Justin Martyr here, and he may be influenced by some of that ancient Greek philosophy 
that we were talking about, it was his conviction that, and he states it pretty dramatically, that we can't even name the divine being. You can't even, even, it's not even proper to even call him the divine being, but just what he is. He says, anyone who tries that raves with hopeless madness. And the names that we give him, or the names that he's called in Scripture, Father, God, Lord, Master, they're not truly names, but they're titles derived from his good designs and functions. So they don't really get at the true nature of God, that behind that there's still something more. Danny? Yes, right. He is, right. And, and the flip side of the equation, right, how can we know him who is, who is utterly unique from us? So how can we know a God like this? And in addition to Justin Martyr, um, another theologian, John Scotus, and I'm just trying to give you a little flavor for what theologians have said and so on and so forth. Uh, John Scotus says, God is more truthfully said not to be any of the things that are claimed of him than he is said to be. He is better known by not being known. Ignorance of him is true knowledge. So again, you get that same, that same feeling, right? That, in fact, again, this is radically transcendent vision of God that we may call him Father and Lord and Master and Savior, but he says even to say that it's more proper what he's not than even these things. So ignorance then is, is in fact true wisdom rather than knowledge. And what you'll find is if you survey the um, systematic theologies and all the writings throughout church history, that there is a very strong strand of this type of thinking within Christian theology based on the passages that we looked at last week, kind of moving from those to talk about God. Yet, there is this tension in Scripture. On one hand, you have this radically transcendent God. I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3. You have the words of the prophet Isaiah that we looked at last week. Who can you compare to me? And even later on in some of the Apostle Paul's writings, and in particular some of his sermons that he speaks to the Gentiles, you get this same picture of, the, of a God who just defies comprehension. And yet, on the other hand, there is the most human depictions of God that you could possibly imagine, where Abraham's speaking with God face to face, or um, Samson's parents are speaking with the angel of the Lord, who what they say is Yahweh, so on and so forth, right? There's these two opposite poles that are held in a very delicate tension within Scripture, this transcendent God, and yet this totally imminent God. And what we're going to try to do um, this evening is kind of explore that space between those two sides of the spectrum. What is going on between those, and how do we get from this God, transcendent, to this imminent God? How do we know God who is ultimately incomprehensible yet knowable, right? There's that tension there, and we want to try to explain it. And really, before we do, or at least we attempt an answer, it's important that we acknowledge that this is a mystery, I tried a little bit last week, and I'm going to do it all throughout our series here, is undercut what we're doing and remember the vantage point that we're coming from, a human vantage point where our knowledge, especially in these areas where 
the light of Scripture is a little bit more dim. We don't want to speak too dogmatically here, but we're trying to speak from the best of the church's 2,000 years of history, reflecting on these things and so on and so forth. So we'll start with a, a, a passage from Herman Bavinck, and we'll come to him a lot throughout the series. He says, It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. And so before we want to get to, okay, this is how we can know God, we just want to stand in the middle and gratefully acknowledge the mystery, the utterly transcendent God and the yet the God who's more personal to us than we are to ourselves. So all that said, let's go ahead and attempt our answer. So typically, um, theologians have classified our God talk into three categories. Okay, and we'll spend some time looking at each of these. Um, some say that we speak about God univocally. Some say that we speak about God um, unequivocally, and others that we speak analogically. So we'll look at each of those respectively. So um, univocal language is when a word or a concept is considered, or it's univocal when it only has one possible meaning. So if I say Fido is a dog, and then I say Rover is a dog, in those two sentences, the word dog is univocal because it means exactly the same thing in both contexts, right? There's not any difference in meaning. Rover is a dog. Fido is a dog. The word dog means exactly the same thing. Are we all on the same page there, right? Not, not too bad. Okay, so now theologically speaking, univocal language means that a word or a phrase or an assertion is identical in meaning when it's applied to God and creation. So, univocally understood, when the Scripture says that God is righteous or that God is good, He is so in the exact same way that humans are righteous and good. So, you have these two different contexts. One is applied to God. One is applied to humans. But the words righteous and good have the same meaning. There's no disjunction. There's no slippage. What it means for a man to be righteous is also what it means for God to be righteous. So there's this nearly exact one-to-one correlation. Human words, our concepts, our understanding, our ideas, are just as appropriate for God as they are for us. So before we move on, um, let me just make sure we're on the same page. Does that make sense? It's all clear. Okay, so then let me ask. Um, what is your assessment of univocal language? Do you think, do you see some strengths in it? Do you see maybe weaknesses in it? Um, before we get to the other one, what do you think about univocal language? Anyone want to take a stab? Yes. Absolutely. Hmm. 
Absolutely. John? Okay. All right, you're jumping ahead. <laughs> Liz? Yes. Right. Well, we'll come to that. The whole end of the section, we're going to be talking about how to read Scripture in light of this God. Ginger? Yes, very much so, right? We're all coming from different vantage points, different cultures, different, different ways of viewing the world, so on and so forth, where um, even that's a big part of Scripture interpretation, right? Trying to get in that context. Um, anything else? Anybody else before we move on? I think we're all basically saying the same things. Mike? They can, but I mean just specifically... So I can say, yeah, John's my, he's my dog. You know, I'm changing the meaning there. But I mean, in those two contexts, they have the same meaning. So specific to the context. Does that make sense? Are you, what are you, so what are you, I'm confused. Right. Okay. All right, so let's move forward. This is elementary stuff. I don't need I don't know why I'm even saying this stuff. Okay, so, okay, for obvious reasons, that doesn't work. Um, you, you think of maybe some of the more obvious instances in Scripture, like when it says that God sharpened his sword and bends his bow, right? Okay, we know when we're reading that, that that's not, of course, there's something going on there that's not uh, metaphorical language, so on and so forth. Or you think of Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, when God looks at the Tower of Babel, it says, and he sees it and he comes down. Okay, we believe God is omnipresent, that God is, he's not located anywhere in space. And to even say that God comes down, okay, there's something being communicated there, but it's not literal, right? There is a huge disjunction there between uh, the language. So uh, univocal language on that basis falls apart. And even think about maybe some ones that we typically look over. Just think about Genesis 1, right, where it says, God said. He, he said, let there be light, so on and so forth. Now, in one sense, that's really appropriate to God because he speaks his word and so on and so forth. But how we understand what the scripture means when it says that God is saying something, um, we have to interpret that in light of God, right? He, he's not, they're not audible sounds that are coming, vibrating through the air and coming out of his lungs and through his vocal cords like with us. It's something fundamentally totally different. It's speech, but it's not human speech. So you see there's a 
univocal language doesn't work there. Same thing when God saw something, right? He's not seeing through his eyeballs. He's not allowing light to come in and processing it and, and then understanding it and so on and so forth. That's not what's going on there. So when obviously Scripture speaks that way, we know that, okay, this, doesn't, this ultimately doesn't stand up. But you'll find that this type of univocal interpretation of Scripture is quite common today. Um, certain pastors, we'll get to them, and I'll, and I'll read some quotes for you as we get further along in the series, and certain theologians, um, typically theologies that we have identified as false theologies, like I don't know if you guys have heard of the idea of open theism or um, the process theology that God is discovering himself and that God is figuring out who he is and open theism is that God doesn't know the future. A lot of these theologies are based on a very univocal understanding of Scripture. So like a passage like Amos chapter 6 verse 7 that says, the Lord changed his mind about this. And Jeremiah chapter 26 verse 3 that says, perhaps, it's the Lord saying, perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil ways. They take the meaning in those passages God changed his mind. God saying, well, perhaps, maybe they're going to they're gonna repent. They take those and they read what's happening there in the exact same way uh, for God as for us. And so they, based on these passages, come up with theologies that say, well, God is within time. His plans are subject to alteration and change. And, and these different things where they're reading those passages, but they're not reading them in a way that's one in light of the rest of Scripture and one in a way that is worthy of God himself. And we'll get to a little bit of that in just a second. So, again, ultimately, as you guys have all said, the problem with univocal language is that it makes human words and human ideas the determining factor in our God talk. So, well, let me just cut to the chase. We all get this. I'm speaking of what we already know about. I'll read you Tertullian. Um, he, he has a, a nice little quote about people who um, read Scripture this way. He says, Oh, these fools who from things human form conjectures about things divine. And because in mankind passions of this sort are taken to be corruptive character, suppose that in God also they are of the same quality. And then he says this, It is highly inconsistent of you to put human characteristics in God rather than divine characteristics in man and clothe God with man's image rather than man with God's. And so that is the fundamental error. We're clothing God in man's image when we speak univocally, rather than um, man in God's image, which, again, we'll get to. So, um, we're all on the same page there. Now, the second form of theological language, again, I'm going to realize it's going to be is equally obvious for you guys, is um, equivocal knowledge, or equivocal knowledge. I don't know how to quite to say it. I've never heard it said. I just read it. So just roll with it. Um, so a word is considered equivocal when it has the possibility of several different meanings. So consider the word bat. In regards to baseball, bat means a specific thing, right? Uh, a, a piece of lumber uh, formed into the shape of a bat so that you could use to swing, right? And then on Halloween, it means something totally different. In those two contexts, there is no likeness between the two bats. One means something else, or one means one thing, and the other means something 
entirely different. So, theologically speaking, equivocal language means that when a word is used of God, it bears no resemblance whatsoever to the way that it's used in creation. So, again, if we were to say that God is righteous and good, it would mean that he is righteous and, a good, he is righteous and good in a way that is um, utterly unlike our righteousness and goodness, such that those words that we apply to God are really just empty placeholders, right? And I remember I quoted Justin Martyr earlier. He's kind of skirting on this edge where he's saying that the names Father, God, Lord, Master, we give those to God, but they're really not getting at anything, that the reality behind them is so much greater, right? Uh, He says these are appellations derived from his good designs and functions. So you kind of get an idea then for what um, equivocal theological language is about. Um, It assumes an almost complete break in in some theologies, a complete break um, in language uh, between what we mean by it and the reality of God, such that, as Justin Martyr says, it's pure madness to even try to name God. So, for the sake of discussion, let me just put it out there again. What do you guys think about this one? Um, strengths, weaknesses. And I'll be honest, if, if, I, if I wasn't coming from a Christian perspective, this is where I would land. I think I would land here where God is so exalted, it, it's foolish to think that there's not a creator, but he's so exalted, it's not like you can see him anywhere. I would, myself, apart from the Christian, of my faith, I would go this way. But what do you guys think about it? Do you find any usefulness? Do you think maybe this could have a place in our talk about God? Right, and that's exactly the next part of this, right, is, is this equivocal language, it fails because it encourages almost a type of agnosticism, right? We may know that God is, but we don't know what God is, right? Such that, again, we can't even speak of him. And it essentially what it does is it locks God out of creation. He's so transcendent, so exalted, that he can't reveal himself to us. And so... These are phrases that are used in different uh, um, ancient uh, Greek philosophy. God is called an inexpressible depth. So deep that beyond expression. Or um, another one is that he's an eternal silence. Right? And, and if you guys are familiar at all with um, like Gnosticism or um, certain forms of Platonism, they believe that God was so exalted that he couldn't even have created this world, and there needed to be some intermediary being that created the world called the Demiurge between God and creation, right? So it's this, I'm a Demiurge, right? That's, I don't know where that comes from, but it's so far exalted that he can't even be a creator. So, again, this overturns all of Scripture. This overturns all of religion. And it basically turns God into, he's impotent in a way. He's not powerful enough to reveal himself. Um, And so the world then is godless in the most absolute sense of the word. God's locked out of his own creation. And 
again, the problem here with univocal, or excuse me, with equivocal language is that it misunderstands God's transcendence. It approaches transcendence from a fundamentally Greek philosophy point of view, right? Where it's, it's really closer to maybe Plato or Aristotle than it is to the scriptures, you know, the prophets and Moses and so on and so forth, where, like we said, God is so exalted, he has no participation in the world whatsoever. Um, so there's a misunderstanding of transcendence. And now that kind of leads us to um, the last and what we believe is the best answer. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm, that's what we're saying is that this type of speech is fundamentally flawed. That when Jesus says to calm the Father, he's, he speaks as one who knows. He comes from the Father. He comes from heaven. And that's why Jesus, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He can reveal him such that what's revealed to us by the Lord um, and in light of the rest of Scripture is true knowledge. And that's what we'll, we'll come back to that. But yeah, this what we just talked about, univocal language, maybe it might be appropriate for certain things. Like if you were going to say God is like the carpet or whatever, like something really dumb. Of course, like, okay, God, so he, there's no likeness, right? It might work in some extent, in some situations for certain things, but it doesn't work across the board, especially for names like Father, so on and so forth. So what we think is that Justin Martyr there was taking things a little bit overboard. He was, he was, uh, well, he was speaking untruly. So, while univocal language makes God too human-like and equivocal language misunderstands transcendence, the scriptures make neither mistake. They hold the transcendence and the imminence of God in perfect harmony. And this is where we're going to make a jump to our analogical language. In the Bible, transcendence and imminence, so God's otherness and God's nearness to creation, are not two separate things, but really they're one side are there, there are two sides of the same coin. Um, they're essentially the, well, they're equal and opposite. So listen to what Thomas Wayne Andy says. Um, he says, For God to be transcendent in the biblical understanding means that he is wholly other than the created order. But here's what he says. But not apart from the created order. That which makes him divine and thus wholly other and so transcendent is that which equally allows him to be active within the creative order and so be imminent. To see what he's saying there, the Bible consistently affirms that God is transcendent, but it doesn't affirm that God is apart from the created order. He fills heaven and earth. He is everywhere present in creation. So whereas in ancient Greek philosophy, they would understand God's transcendence as his distance from creation, we understand God's transcendence, the flip side of it, to be his nearness to creation. He's radically other, but not in such a way that he's apart from creation. So he says that the Bible holds these together. And you'll see that, right? If you just kind of treat the different aspects of Scripture as one, you, it becomes very clear. So it's not an either-or decision. Um, it's not that we take transcendence at the cost of eminence or that we take eminence at the cost of transcendence. They're both as one. Any questions on that? That seems to make sense, right? They're both as one. So, 
that helps us make sense of analogical, analogical language. Um, now, a word is analogical when it bears different but related meanings. This is getting close to uh, what Jono was talking about earlier. So I can say, the sun rises over the mountains, and that man over there is a mountain. Now, in the context, we're using the word mountain analogically. Clearly, a man is not a mountain, nor is a mountain a man, but they do, in this sense, bear a related meaning. Mountains are towering, immovable, and domineering, and so certain men are towering, domineering, and immovable, right? You get it. There's some likeness. There's a distance, but there's a closeness. Um, That is analogical language. So analogical language, when we use it theologically, means that a word used of God is not identical with its use in creation, but um, there is also a similarity. So, again, analogically understood, to use our example that we've been using, when we say that God is good and that God is righteous, we're saying so that he is, well, we mean it in a way that he is at once similar and dissimilar from the way a human is righteous and good. There's a likeness, but there's also an unlikeness, right? And you see how this strikes the balance between our two polar opposite views. Again, one wants to make God totally eminent. They want to almost make him a part of creation so that he can be an object that we can encompass. The other one wants to put God so far out of the world that we have no knowledge of him whatsoever. Analogical language strikes the balance where there is a similarity but a difference. So, Human words truly speak of God, but not comprehensively of God. Um, In one sense, they're fitting, and in another sense, they're unfitting. Um, So, a true apprehension, but not a complete one. And this makes sense of some of the statements that you find in the Scripture, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul says, We see, but in a mirror dimly, right? We it's, I mean, you think of what a mirror would have been back then. It's, uh, there's not the detail that we would see. There's not the precision and the clarity. Rather, it's almost like you see the forms, um, but you can't see the details, right? We can hear sounds, but we can't make out the words. We can experience God, but only fleetingly, right? Or you think of that passage where Jesus heals the man born blind, or he's not born blind, but he gives him back his sight, and Jesus asks him, what do you see? And he says, I see men, but I see them as trees walking. I can see, but it's not quite clear. And that's a good analogy for how we would describe our comprehension of God. Okay, we don't want to be so radical to say that anything that we know about God doesn't have any correspondence. We don't want to be the other side and say, yeah, this is exactly how God is. But we want to be right in the middle where there's, we're striking the balance there. It's a dim picture, but it is truly a picture. So let's tease this out a little bit more. Actually, before I do any questions, um, how do you guys feel about that? I think that probably aligns with where most of us are at, right? What we think about, and um, we'll look at how to read Scripture in that in just a second. But... So, John Leno, L-E-N-O-W, I don't know how that's pronounced, but he gives us a little bit more um, bearing about how to 
tease out this analogical language. He says, we can attribute steadfastness and goodness each individually to God as characteristics of the divine life. But beyond that, we do not know what to say. We know that God is steadfast. Uh, We know that God's steadfastness and goodness are not like our own, but we do not know how they are unlike our own. We know that something in the divine life is like our notions of steadfastness and goodness, but we lack in principle any categories that might help us describe positively how exactly the divine life exemplifies these attributes. So, um, what he's saying is that on one hand, God's steadfastness and his goodness do mean something like our ideas of steadfastness and goodness. There is a similarity, but beyond that, our capacity to know, we don't have, excuse me, the capacity to know how they are like our own. So on that positive side, we can say, yeah, they're like ours. And then someone asks, well, how is God's goodness and steadfastness like human goodness? Well, we say, exactly, well, we don't know. We don't know exactly where that correspondence is. There's a, there's a element where, again, our understanding breaks down, where even in the Scripture, though it speaks truly of God, it's speaking of a God who transcends our human understanding. So, he says that on the positive, positive side, and then alternatively, on the negative side, steadfastness, God's steadfastness and goodness are not like our own. There is a dissimilarity, but it's beyond our capacity to know how they differ from ours, right? So on the opposite side, they're not like ours, but we don't know how they're not like ours. We don't know exactly in which ways God's goodness and his steadfastness differ from our own. So I think an easy way to explain it is just to say that God's, well, the language we use of God as it pertains to him is three-dimensional, and our knowledge is only two-dimensional, right? They think about that like a, a square on a page. And, you know, you've kind of seen those diagrams before. They've all explained them to you in school. You know, the third dimension. Then it becomes a cube, right? And then from the cube, there's, you know, videos about trying to talk about what a four, I don't know, 4D, 5D, whatever, going to the next dimensions, what this might possibly look like. And it's just mind-bending. And it's kind of that idea. Our knowledge of God is true knowledge, but it's on a human plane. It's fundamentally 2D, whereas God exists not 3D or whatever, but he exists infinitely surpassing that. So there is a likeness, but it's a likeness that, um, well, is appropriate to our human knowing. Any questions? Pretty straightforward? Okay, very good. So clearly analogical is our best option, but it's not perfect. There's a vagueness and there's inadequacy to our speech. And I want to say at least just a few words about why analogical language works. Laurel brought this up last week. She asked, well, what about Genesis 1? We're made in the image and likeness of God. And that's fundamentally why this language works, is that though the creation is utterly distinct from God, it still bears this resemblance to God. And not only that, specifically humans and human language there's some inexplicable likeness to the divine life. Think about it. We're the only creatures with language, and the Son of God is called the Word. And I really wanted to have some sort of better explanation for you because all I can say is that, yeah, we're created in the image of likeness of God. And I wanted to try and tease it out and show you this is how it works and this is how it breaks out, and 
I just think that's another one of those areas where it just all falls apart. People, I, I, I mean, there were so many different explanations, and I tried to read as many of them I could and to understand them, and how we are like God, how there is that similarity in creation to the divine life is, again, it's one of those mysteries like we talked about in the beginning. So, and I think maybe some of it has to do with the spiritual pre-existing, the natural and the spiritual, or the natural coming from the spiritual and so on and so forth, but that's conjecture. So, any questions on that before we move on? We're going to talk about anthropomorphism now. Okay, we're good. So, anthropomorphism. Scripture speaks analogically. There's likeness and a dislikeness, and it speaks anthropomorphically. Now, anthropomorphisms in Scripture, um, you know, right, the, the obvious ones. We talked about some of them. God bending his bow, God coming down, God wetting his sword, and so on and so forth, right? These are anthropomorphisms. But one thing I think that we sometimes miss is how pervasive anthropomorphism is in the Scripture. Again, back to Bavink. He says, The revelation of God in nature and Scripture is specifically addressed to humanity. It is a human language in which God speaks to us of himself. For that reason, the words he employs are human words. For the same reason, he manifests himself in human forms. From this, it follows that Scripture does not just contain a few scattered anthropomorphisms, but is anthropomorphic through and through. So, according to Bavink, again, the Scripture doesn't just sometimes speak anthropomorphically, but it's anthropomorphic through and through, from beginning to end. He says, because the limitations of our human nature demand it. We cannot know God divinely as He is in Himself. That knowledge is excluded from us. It's beyond our capacity. So, if we are to know Him, it has to be accommodated to our capacity. It has to be put on our level. So, in other words, if we are to know God, it's God who must come to us. We can't go up to Him. God's got to come down to us, and we can't go up to Him. So, therefore, uh, the Holy Scripture is God's accommodation of Himself to our finitude and weakness. I can't. His, his hiccups are too stinking cute, man. <laughs> That's my nephew, by the way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, God's accommodating Himself to our human finitude and weakness. So, as God is portrayed in the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, He speaks to us. It's, it's in a human way. He speaks to us in a human way. So again, let me go back to Bavink. He says, as we saw above, the use of anthropomorphism is absolutely not confined to an occasion expression. In fact, we cannot speak of God any other way. So again, that's a, it's a pretty jarring reality, right? To think that all our understanding of God is firmly rooted from the human perspective. There's none of it that transcends it. There's none of it that gets beyond it, even if it is, of course it is in Scripture, the fullest revelation of God, especially in Christ. Yet even in Christ, specifically in Christ, it's accommodated to human understanding, right? It's according to our way. So again, there's obvious, 
depictions of this when Scripture speaks anthropomorphically and it says that God has eyes. It says that he has a mouth and hands and arms and ears and nose, right, and so on and so forth. When we know, Jesus says, John chapter 4, God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. He's not located to one section within the universe like we are. He's exalted. Now, the incarnation is something completely else, and we'll have to deal with that somewhere else um, down the road, but you guys get the point. But this is even a little bit more radical. Think about things like when it talks about God's emotions. It says that God rejoices, that God, He has joy, and He laughs, He scoffs at the nations, or He's jealous. We typically don't understand those as anthropomorphisms. We're speaking about God in a human way, but yet there it is, right? These are even those. I think we just tend to miss those a little bit more often. Those are anthropomorphic language as well, where, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So you guys get the picture. So in those areas, maybe where you're more prone to read Scripture in a one-to-one fashion, we need to take a step back and recognize that these areas too are anthropomorphic. And that's in them, God is speaking our language that, me, that we might understand it. And that doesn't mean, however, and here's where we want to get, that anthropomorphic language is false or misleading, right? It is trying to truly say something about the divine life, about who God is. And I don't want to give the impression that, well, it doesn't mean anything at all, because it does. It's just we have to interpret it in a way that's proper to God, and, and we'll get to that. So again, let me go back to Wayne Andy. And uh, for, I found Wayne Andy, just uh, a little bit of uh, reference for you. He's a Catholic theologian, but I found him because he was one of the main defenders of the classic vision of God against these new, like, open theism and process theology and so on and so forth. So he, this guy is like, he, he, really, he really is a, a, a good friend of of the Protestant church. So anyway, it says, undoubtedly, the Bible is using anthropomorphic language, but it nonetheless is attempting to say something that is actually true about God. And then here's where I think he really helps us. He says, therefore, there is a legitimate literalness to what is being said, but it is a literalness that must be interpreted from within the complete otherness of God. So you see how he's doing what analogical language does. He's holding the two poles in tension. He says, it, there is a way in which we can interpret these anthropomorphisms literally, but we must interpret them literally in light of the transcendence of God. So, when the scripture says that God, I don't know, let's just use an outrageous one, God bends his bow, like literally he's going to shoot his arrows into his enemy. We can interpret that literally, but in a sense that's true to God, right? And how to do that takes a few more steps, which we're going to talk about. And, and so in Wayne Andy, what he's trying to tell us to do here, right, to hold these two poles in tension is not anything new. Um, he's drawing on an ancient tradition that started with the very first um, well, with the apostles and then on into the church fathers, that early period of the church where there's, and I go there is because these, that's when these debates were happening. They were at the forefront and they were trying to settle them and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, he's drawing on from the church fathers. 
So, I want to move on now to how to read Scripture in light of this. I want to talk about what we can do and so on and so forth. But before I do, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Any questions about analogical language, anthropomorphic language, anything there that might be, that strikes you as maybe a little bit too much? Um, I don't know. I just want to make sure everything's on the table before we move forward. Well, specifically, yes, as we're talking about God. Well, okay, well, let's consider he breathed into man the nostrils of life. I mean, what sort of breath are we talking about there? I mean, well, well because of who God is. And so we have to, so, so you're already reading it that way, right? It's like, it's literal, but we have to understand it in context of who God is. And so it's, we're trying to hold both of them intention. And I guess if you wanted to say, I don't necessarily think it's the right thing, but if you wanted to say, it's like, well, good, could have God like assumed a human form and literally breathed breath into his, no, into his nostrils? Like how we understand what's happening there, there's, I think there's room to, to go one way or the other. I, so I want to affirm the literalness, but just try to read it in light of who God is. So does that help? Well, and we're talking specifically in relation to God. So if we're going to take this to other things, there's in the scripture, there's many more ways of interpretation that we're going to have to deal with to, to make sense of that. Because, right, you're talking about prophecy. Mm-hmm. Sure, does anyone feel similar? I feel like it may be a little bit of tension. Mike? Yeah, such as? Right, but like we said earlier, there's a likeness and a dislikeness. So God is angry in a way that's similar to human anger, but also in a way that's dissimilar to human anger. So whatever Wayne Andy is saying there, because a lot of the stuff I got I learned from Wayne Andy specifically about the likeness and dislikeness, because he's the one who talks a lot about God's transcendence and imminence. So if you're reading this in a way that it seems to say, well, we have to read these in light of God's transcendence, and therefore they don't really mean what they mean. That's not where we're going with it. What we're trying to say is that these words are still human words, even though they're words of revelation. God's anger, God's love, God's grace, God's so on and so forth, are like our own, but also unlike our own, because he's God and not a human. And I think the only real area where we have any, you know, where we can say, okay, here's the expression, is in Jesus. 
But again, that is the divine life filtered through a human life. So he's the perfect example of those two poles. Is that getting? Sure. Sure. And it's been interpreted that way before. There's been, you know, um, one of the books I had was on the patristic understanding, patristic meaning the church fathers, their talk about God. And there was some of that where they were like wanting, some of them were wanting to deny anger altogether. And they were like, no, this doesn't really mean what it means, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, there's a, a balance. Uh, Ginger. Right. So, uh, okay, no one can disagree with that statement, but I think the only thing I would add to that is the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to us, but it's, we still understand it humanly. I mean, we can't, we can't escape those bounds is kind of what I've been trying to say. So that, and, and there's different senses, right, uh, in, in how we can know that. Because there's an analytical knowledge, right, where there's an a compreh- understanding of the idea. And then there's knowledge of experience. And so I don't know, maybe that's where you were talking about, Ginger, where it's like you can experience God's love in a way that surpasses knowledge, peace that surpasses understanding, right? But what I mean when we're talking about just how to interpret the words, humanly speaking, we're never going to get beyond that. Laurel. Sure, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, let me bring Liz in here, and then we'll, we'll come around again. Liz? I think, 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 I think
Yes. In a negative sense, maybe, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I guess, so, to kind of get at those things, and let me just use Scripture, because, I mean, I'm using all these theologians, but I think maybe there's a misunderstanding that it's like theology apart from Scripture. I can't prove and show you proof text. Here's why this, it just, we'd be here forever, right? We have to assume that at least some of this is, and I'm pulling from theologians who are reputable theologians for that purpose, but think about just Ephesians chapter 2, verse seven, I, we quoted it last week, seven or six, that God's going to reveal his grace to us for ages to come. Okay, does that not imply exactly what we're talking about here? That there, I, we know God's grace. I mean, any experience of God's grace brings me to my knees and tears and thanks and joy. I have an experience of that, but it is so much greater than that. And so that's what we're meaning here, where the likeness, the dislikeness, the um, interpreting it in light of God, it's the 2D, 3D reality. It's true knowledge, but it's not the whole picture. There's so much more. And so if it feels like, if, if any of that sounds like we're trying to overturn things or it's going against literalness or whatever it is, that's definitely not what we're trying to say there, but, but there's always an inexpressible depth beyond those words. They're like ours but they're proper to God and not to man. Does that tie some things up? Mike, you, anything else? I don't think so. I think they're based, well, rooted from Scripture. And the idea that man-made items in relation to God can't help us at all seems like then we have to overturn reason totally. You have to say reason, all of it means nothing, and you end up almost in a place of uh, nihilism, right? And the only thing you have is revelation and reason, none of that matters. So I, although, of course, men are fallible, I don't think these guys are coming from a place where these are solely man's ideas. So, John?
Right. Right. Yes. And I think if there's anything left out of discussion, it's that. It's human sinfulness, right? Where we're separated from God and even with the Holy Spirit, we still see in a mirror dimly, right? We still write and, and uh, that these things aren't quite there for us. So is there anything else? I don't want to move on before because I enjoy this. So, Yes. Yes. Yeah, and, and the, um, I mean, it's really hard to say what it's going to be like on the other side. But you have that passage in First John 3 where it says, we will know him as he is. What is it? We'll be, can someone fill me in? We will, we'll be like him, First John. Let me get my Bible. First John chapter 3. Ah, okay. Beloved, this is 1 John 3, 2. Now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared to us what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is, right? That where, like, very similar to what you're saying, Jeff, is that the limitation is on our side. And I think something having to do with resurrected bodies, um, spiritual bodies, and our apprehension of God has to do with that more complete knowledge and so on and so forth. So... Okay, any questions? All right, well, I think this next section will help clear things up just a tad bit. We're going to go to um, a couple sermons from a pastor, a preacher, who was nicknamed the Golden Mouth Preacher. His name is uh, John Christossom. He is a great example about how to properly read the Scriptures in light of God's transcendence. And in his sermons, this is something that comes up again and again and again. And again, I'm not relying on my own research for this, but this came from um, a book on Christossom that uh, I had read. So Christossom argues that we should make a distinction between what he calls, on one hand, the considerateness of Scripture and then a sense befitting to God. Considerateness of Scripture and then a sense befitting to God. And I want to use that as hopefully a, a helpful way for us to approach this. So think about a passage, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. The area where we're looking for and we want to bring our discussion to is that word remembered. God remembered Noah in the ark. So let me show you how Christossom treats this. Notice once again, I ask you, the considerateness of sacred scripture. God remembered, it says. Let us take what is said, dearly beloved, in a sense befitting to God and not interpret the concreteness of the expression from the viewpoint of the limitations of our human condition. I mean, as far as the ineffable essence of God is concerned, the word is improper. But as far as our limitations are concerned, the expression is made appropriately. So, Holy Scripture, Christosom says, addresses us, as it addresses us, it speaks to us considerately. In other words, if you want a technical term for what Christosom calls the considerateness of Scripture, it's called the doctrine of accommodation. So you can look that up. It's nothing new. It's been in theology for the longest time, trying to make sense of God speaking to humans. He accommodates himself to our language. And as Christossom says, he adapts himself 
So God condescends to our level and speaks to us humanly. He goes on. He speaks this way so as to make an impression on the minds of more materialistic people. For in our case, too, when we converse with foreigners, we use their language. If we speak with children, we babble away with them. And if we are extremely gifted, we show considerateness for their undeveloped state. God, likewise, wanting to make an impression on materialistic people, made use of such words. For in so speaking, you see, his concern was not for his own glory, but for the benefit of his listeners. So, accommodation. God is, like he says, a fully formed adult speaking to infants. And so he's babbling away. He speaks heavenly language, and we speak human language. And so he adapts to us, and he speaks our language. We uh, are, again, we can't transcend our own human limits. And so God says, I'm going to come to you. So here's what Christotsum says. As the statement God, uh, the statement God remembered is inappropriate as it pertains to the divine nature, and we'll talk about this in just a second, but as it pertains to our weakness, it's appropriate. So I'm not going to fault anyone. I'm going to try to tell them, okay, are you, so, are you so sure that God remembered? Are you so sure that a memory came to him that had disappeared out of his mind and then immediately popped back? There is a literalness there where it's like, okay, I understand, like, but we're talking about God here, so let's try. And So there's a sense where he says, what we're trying to do is read that in light of God's nature. And fortunately for us, there's many more passages like this in Christophsim. I just chose this one because it was obvious. But fortunately for us, he doesn't attempt an answer. And so I want to try, maybe this will be the constructive side of our lecture tonight. We've got a little bit more time before I cut you guys. Um, what might it mean to say that God remembered in relation to himself? What might that mean? Anybody have any? Okay, of course, yeah. Holly? He remembered his faithfulness. Yeah, humanly speaking, right? Yeah, okay. Ginger. Right. Yeah, right. 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 And and when you think about it, right, we, we say God is timelessly eternal. He's not bound within time. So... He has no past from which to remember something, right? There, he has no future in which to enact something. He's always in the present. So, right, this, even to say remembered is just, I mean, but I think the way you guys are talking about it, you see the way Scripture accommodates itself to us. And how from a human perspective, Lord, why have you forgotten me? Why are you leaving me? Like, why, why? And then, oh, God remembered me. You know, he, these type of things where Scripture speaks this way. Think about another one in earlier on in Genesis 6 where it says that God um, was sorry that he made man. What do we do with a passage like that? How should we read that in light of God's nature? Any takers? Yeah. Joey? 
Okay. Right, so that's another question, right? Is, is sadness, I mean, how does that work in God, right? You know, because, again, it's not like he didn't know it was going to happen. And, right, it's, you see how once, like, you try to, it's hard. And, and, and I'm not ever going to fault anyone for just saying the considerateness of Scripture. And, yeah, he was sad. And when I'm talking to someone, counseling someone, if it's in the context of a sermon, I'm not going to go off on a debate and say, okay, now let's talk about God's timeless eternity and it does, you know, and try to qualify it. No, God was sad. We can truly use that word, and it means what it means. But in another way, right, we can take a step back in situations like this and conversations with one another and say, okay, well, what is it, you know, how do we do that? How do we, how do we read this? So what are some other ones? Can you guys think of any other passages like that? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of the ones I just read earlier, God changed. Does God change? Um, maybe Jesus wept. Well, he did weep, yeah. And that's an expression of the divine nature, right? So you guys get what I'm saying, right? Laurel, go ahead. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. There's an appropriateness. Yeah. And that's where that's where I think a lot of the, a lot of, I, if we're talking purely theology, where it gets astray and it, you know, God is absolute and so on and so forth. If we're going to have a whole uh, section coming up talking about God's emotions, so if this is, wait till we get to that one. That'll be fun. Yes. Yes, and, and I think in all of our ter- interpretations, what, what we have to come back to, because when we leave that, um, that uh, the words of Scripture and try to think, okay, as it pertains to what else we know about God from Scripture, at that point, we're, we're kind of out in the ocean, right? And it's, we fundamentally can't say for sure. So what I would want to reaffirm to you, right, and anyone in a similar position is say that 
yes, the, the Scripture is speaking truly. God is sad. I mean, I, we can't deny that because then it's like, well, then you're just overturning Scripture, right? It is, but we've got to interpret it in a sense of God. And there isn't a time appropriate for that, and grieving and suffering and so on and so forth is just not, not the time. Okay, well, anything else? Mike. What about Malachi 3, which says, I am the Lord, I change not. <laughs> it's like... Can a God who doesn't change, change his mind? I'm not so sure. But he is also God who is outside of time. Right, are we not... From the human perspective, could it be that they experienced what seemed to them to be a change? Think about, we'll talk about this in 1 Samuel 15. Well, let me, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come to this. But 1 Samuel 15, God installs Samuel as, or, excuse me, Saul as king. Saul blows it. He doesn't execute God's orders. And then God says, I repent from ever having Saul is king, right? And then immediately after that, Samuel says to Saul, God is not a man that he should change his mind. So the scripture is telling us there how to interpret that passage. In one sense, you have God saying, well, I repent. And then he says, then Samuel says, God doesn't repent, literally in the next breath. And so it's a hint, I believe, within scripture about how we should interpret those passages. Because you have to, you have to choose one or the other. Right. I mean, a God who is fundamentally outside of time, how can he change anything? I, I know those are hard, hard thoughts, but... Right. And, and there's a modern distaste for an unchanging God. And well, anyway, we'll get to those. John, let me get to you right away. Right. Mike? Uh, I would say, yeah, because God... <laughs> Who knows what God's knowledge is, right? But, uh, but yeah, so you see how in relation to God, it's a very complicated and, and delicate picture. And I hope, I hope only in all this to kind of just provoke that thought within you guys. And so we'll have to, we'll have to wrap it up. It's 8.17 now. Um, I just want to give you a preview for next week. We're going to be talking about God's aseity. That's an old Latin word that means God's from himselfness. And I think some of the questions that we had today, they might be able to be put a little in context next week. It's called God's aseity. I think it's S-A-R-A-S-E-I-T-Y. I'm a horrible speller. Aseity, um, and it's God's from himselfness, his self-sufficiency. Um, it'll, be, it'll be a good one. I think there'll be less 
uh, opportunity for, we'll, we'll all be in agreement on that one, I hope. Um, but uh, anyway, guys, I'm really, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad that you're getting in it, because this is the point of this, right? It's, I don't want to just say it and go away, we're good. The point is this discussion. This is what we want, because the discussion leads to truth, and I may very, 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 may very well be wrong on some of these things, and the conversation helps bring it out, so it's very good. But let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for some of the things that we're talking about, Lord, um, and we're grateful at one time that you are who the scripture says you are, and yet you infinitely surpass that. And that's really our hope, Lord, that one day we will see you, that the veil will be removed, that the hindrances of our fleshly nature and our sinfulness will be done away with, and that we will see you as you are, and we'll be soaking in for eternity the richness of of, of you, and we're super thankful, Lord, and we give you glory, and we pray, Lord, that you direct us into the truth, that you would help us to come to know you more. We love you, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just a heads up, guys, at the chairs, the masks, you don't have, it's okay, but when we're mingling, we'll have to wear them then, so FYI.